Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We're back, and we are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Keeper Mark, and with me tonight is Keeper Bob. Hey, everybody. And Keeper Jen. Good evening. Good evening. Tonight, exciting, we delve into the works of the Queen of Space Opera, Lee Brackett, as we discuss... The Hounds of Scaife. Jen, do you want to start us off with a synopsis? Sure. In the second volume of Leigh Brackett's exemplary trilogy, The Book of Scaife, Eric John Stark, having expelled the Lord's Protector from their northern citadel and released his friend and mentor, Galactic Ambassador Ashton, heads south to find the wise woman Gareth in her formant to foment rebellion, wow, and in spite of the Wandsmen and the Lord's Protector's wishes, to open the dying planet to star travel. Although he's outnumbered, he possesses one extraordinary advantage. He now holds mental mastery over the Hounds of Scathe, fierce mutant beasts that paralyze their enemies by the power of fear alone. Yeah, this was cool. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's Lee Brackett, right? You cannot go wrong with Lee Brackett. I didn't feel like I had to go back and read the first book. They actually gave us this last time on. And yeah. And nice and encapsulated and every now and then would refer back to something that would be, I guess, what you'd consider like a running gag or running joke throughout the the series. But I don't feel like I missed a whole lot by not reading the first book first. No, well, because like any good serialized program, it starts with previously on. <laughs> uh, and that's the thing, right? I mean, you know, Lee Brackett was born in 1915. So you know, around around the time you know, that she started writing, we were starting to see serialized films and shorts. And uh, and so that just makes perfect sense. And she she did not have it easy growing up. I mean, she lost her father in the 1918 flu epidemic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but she was That's introduced good. to Burroughs, which sort of, you know, because I look at this, I'm like, wow, this is like John Carter of Mars, but much better. <laughs> and, uh, wow. And I guess, much later, it, right? Really, much it later. really is. I mean, the John Carter books, the, the first one's really good. The second one's okay. It's good. The third one is, is, is fair. The fifth one is essentially the first one, except now it's his son. And so they just sort of repeat. This is just, it just punches and doesn't let go. Yeah, and Jen, you said that you didn't have to read the first one, but I want to read the first one and the third one after reading this one. It was so compelling. I, 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 I you know, jumping into the middle was kind of fun because we have like that all that you know framework and build up already completed, and he's got this really cool story now. This really cool like sort of you know taking vengeance back against the you know the uprising against the 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 wandsmen and all the people he already succeeded through the funnel so we start in media res <laughs> as he's leveled up <laughs> yeah well and, and that's the not only did we, did we start with book two of the series there's like five or six novellas with him that come first right oh wow yes uh he was like her big recurring character and his last appearance was in a posthumously published collaboration with her husband, um, Edmund Hamilton. And that was Stark and the Star Kings. That combined, you know, her Eric Stark and his Star Kings. And that came out in 2005. To put it in perspective, she died in 1978. 
Mm-hmm. And he died before she did. So it obviously yeah, uh, <laughs> sat around for a while before coming out. But yeah, it, he's just such a neat character. I, now there's some comments in the, the Twitch chatter about uh, the world building being fantastic, especially in the first one. And oh, I, yeah. I get the feeling that I might have been a little more bored during the first one because I'm not an avid reader of strategy and and wartime stuff so i feel like this was a good happy medium in in the in the scheme of that well i mean her her world building is always pretty solid right and i don't think it i don't think it gets overly drawn out i mean when we read um the priestess of the of the mad moon back in like Oh. Sanctum 16. One of the comments was, you know, this says a lot without saying a lot. Um, <laughs> she is, she's not, um, she doesn't have Vance's brevity with descriptions, but she's certainly not as, as verbose in her descriptions as Michael Moorcock. She's, she's still a little on the, <laughs> on the sparse side. So, you know, her world building is generally a quick explanation of what's going on when it's needed and not before. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's also, I found it really interesting. Like, she does do a lot of, like, sort of, you know, I, I, I think the comparison to Vance is interesting because, you know, there's a lot of sort of, like, throwaway things, but they're very enriching, right? You know, just in terms yeah. of, like, you know, what material is sort of, like, behind that. And, and until I read the full series, it's hard to know, like, how much of that is expanded on the other books. But in this book, at least, you know, that kind of brevity of, some of the civilizations or cultures are really neat. Like there was like one oh, yeah. part when, you know, at the beginning of the, the books when Stark is, um, you know, facing the, those underground, uh, uh, you know, daughters of the Scathe mother. And, you know, when the, the two sons, Fen and Fenric, I think are the ones that she sends yeah. to go and hunt yeah. Stark. It's, it, and that doesn't take a major plot point, but it's like, you know, it's there and they have to cut their fingers off in order to, have a part of their bodies preserved so that they are, you know, they can be sanctified in the ground, you know, of their homeland. And that's just like a throwaway thing. It's like, yes. oh yeah, you know, before you go, cut your fingers off, make sure that they're buried so that when you don't come back, you at least have some consecrated space and it never comes up again. <laughs> so. It had been so long since anyone had been forced to leave the sacred house in those yes. circumstances that the officiating diviner had difficulty in finding the proper scrolls for the ritual. Yeah, I, love I love that part. Yeah. <laughs> so, there yeah, I mean, there's, a just, of, there's, there's a lot there of that, a lot like, of parts like that, that. Yeah, Mark, I immediately thought of you on, on a lot of these points where I'm like, oh, yeah, he's going to pull that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the other the other scenes that were really engrossing were the the pilgrimage when he's when Stark is like in disguise and trying to, you know, push his way through the crowds. And it's all these sort of like minute scenes of like, there's a dancing pilgrim and there's a prophesizer and there's, you know, the levaciousness, you know, going on, but it's, it's just all, it's all captured really well. And in, in just this very short, you know, uh, very short, you know, clarification points. And it's really neat. I would go so far to say, is there a heavy theocratic tone uh, overtones like, yeah. in this particular book, if not the whole series? Well, and you know, it's it's really interesting because this was published in seventy-four and the whole the whole concept of this world almost seems like a rebuke of the nineteen sixties counterculture movement. Right? I mean, we've got this world where it's okay, our resources are limited, so um everybody needs to be fed, everybody needs to be housed, everyone needs to be taken care of. And um so you people can meet all of those needs, so you do that, everyone else, the world is dying. Just uh, go out and enjoy uh, what what's left of the world, and and it leads to a lot of a lot of resentment and bitterness and anger. <clears throat> I'm reading this, going, "Wow, you know this this conversation feels really really modern." I think I've heard this before on a, on a news channel. <laughs> oh, it is absolutely <clears throat> allegorical. I mean, global warming. We cannot heal Mother Scaife, but. There is still those who believe that their temples and their sacred groves and their ivory cities will stand forever because nothing will ever happen to them. And the people that are ruling are just going to keep doing what they're doing because they're still in power and that's what matters to them. Yeah, uh, they sort of yeah, ignore you know, um, the evidence around them. Yeah. 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 yeah she knew things we didn't. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> all of Scathe is this world in decline. I mean, you know, the, 
the climate change, the dwindling mm-hmm. resources, no population control, because boy, the people out there having fun are out there having fun, including while on pilgrimages. Including not necessarily humans doing this. Yeah. There were, uh, oh, what did they call them? Uh, not not cauldron. Not, they were well-created servants. So yeah, sidestep from that things, perhaps? Yeah, there was a lot of, you know, the dying of the sun, you know, the they had some mm-hmm. rituals that they, they perform every morning where they fed the sun wine and fire. They, yeah. you know, they, all that is very much like, you could imagine that being like, a you know, the dying earth sort of, you know, imbued because oh, yes. it's, it's like those idiosyncratic villagers or villages that, you know, you encounter, but this is like a whole world, you know, that's filled out with that. And I and I I think the first book you know they call it's called the Ginger Star right because of the yeah. the, the, the coloration of its like aged you know uh, you know it's it's leaving it's leaving its you know its lifespan. Um, and, and Bob, when you you know what I was reading when I was reading this was with the climate change overtones, my thoughts were kind of going back to in the culture at the time the big sort of like you know movements were generated from like the Silent Spring or the Population Bomb like these. These two very yeah. impactful books that started, you know, some of the the conversations around, you know, environmentalism, things like that. And it, but I also get your point about like, you know, the you know the sort of autocracy and the 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 counterculture, you know, sort of reaction. Because I I can imagine that too. I'd be curious, like, if there's some some you know work that she's worked. Like a deep dive into this. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, because <laughs> I was thinking more of like this is sort of like the the, the of the moment, you know, discussion of you know, ecological irreparable damage, you know, that people can envision for the future, you know, kind of like coming to to fruition. So. So one of the quotes she uses, you know, she heard at the time, and that's the curse of all democracies is that they talk too much. <laughs> well, that's, that's fair. I mean, she had a number of like, you know, good sort of, sh- you know, short quotes. Another one, I, I think I, I was, um, what invisibility was a condition of Godhead, you know, and that's yes. that being like this sort of, you know, that their, their approach to power, you know, is you have to remain um, indecipherable, right. In the sense of, uh, you know, unknowable. And that led to when, when the pilgrims were presented with the Lord's protector in person, in the flesh, <laughs> the crowds automatically disbelieved it. Yeah. And the wandsmen played into it. They're like, Oh yeah. See, we, we, Told you nothing could happen to those. Oh my God! They literally came out and said fake news. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Biggest crowd of revelers ever. (laughs) And and it's so. God, Mark. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I, didn't, I really didn't stop to think about that until you mentioned it, Jan. But yeah, they, they really did come out and they, say that. It's so easy to avoid the truth if it's veiled in religion, too. You know. Even as Stark is trying to avoid a woman's attentions, he just pulls his hood down further and says, I've, I've taken a vow. <laughs> just, well, use, let's... use the religion as you have to. But that, yeah, Mark, that pilgrimage, man, I, I keep thinking to a couple of particular modules and the fact that Bracket likened it to a stream of humanity complete yeah. with the smells. It's just perfect. Well, let's let's talk about Stark for a second because it's it's interesting that no that no cover artist has ever accurately depicted Stark hmm. because while he is while he is <clears throat> through if if you look at everything he is certainly of of European descent he was born on Mercury and because of the hot suns of Mercury, the hot sun of Mercury, he is as his skin is as black as his hair. And even, even though he was a dark skin European, they would not depict him as such on covers. And there was a lot of discussion about, you know, at, at you know at the time and after about how Lee Brackett was gently trying to push those those borders a little bit on what would be acceptable in the mainstream. That's yeah, it's also it's, I think he's also like called out specifically as he got scarred face from all those like battles and stuff like that. So I'm sure like you know the emphasis on the handsomeness and on the light skin you know became sort of like the push for the novel. Like the cover that I read, you know, which is actually 
you know, say, I, I love this art piece, the ones behind me. Is he that is the a Kindle version? That's the newer version. I don't remember what, what edition it is, but it's... I, uh, I dug that cover, yeah. Yeah, I, and I, I love that that kind of battle scene, you know, but it's mm-hmm. a little darker skin than the other ones, you know, just in terms of, you know, but not but not compared to the descriptions. You're right. And then he had almost, like, pale blue eyes, almost translucent, they were saying. They yeah. were so pale in comparison to everything else and everyone else's eyes there. His eyes are actually what give him away during the pilgrimage. Well, and, and Lee Brackett openly admitted that Stark was a pastiche of, uh, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars, which we know, and, and Tarzan, and that his son blackened skin was the Mercurian version of Tarzan's sun-bronzed skin. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was all nice. very, it, it was, it was done very, very uh, specifically. I mean, she was introduced to to Burroughs through uh, God of Mars when she was still in in grade school, mm. right? So I mean, she had she had devoured the John Carter stories. That's not. I, I gotta say, that's not a series I would envision anybody reading nowadays during grade school. I yeah, at just, the time it was it was. I mean, that was the the highlight. You know, one of the high points yeah. of science fiction. You know, in the early. What nineteen twenties? Um, you know that time frame. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not disparaging it. I'm saying that it's a lot more complex than yeah. kids that age would read nowadays. Usually. Right, but but keep For in the mind, most part. she had written several plays by the age of thirteen while she was in school, and she had been offered a partial college scholarship, which she had to turn down because she couldn't afford the rest of the tuition. So oh, wow. she just decided, I'm going to be a full time writer. And that is what she did. She joined the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society with people like you know, Ray Bradbury and, and Robert Heinlein as members. And she just started submitting stuff and uh, nice. went to work. And then when, you know, since genre fiction would get bought more, but didn't, or you know, sci-fi, you know, pulp fiction, um, you could certainly sell more, but it didn't pay as much. She started writing mysteries. So, like, her first published novel was No Good for a Corpse. And that's how she got the job as writing you know, the screenplays for, like, The Big Sleep, mm. Rio Bravo, The Long Goodbye, which harkens back to a show we just did a couple weeks ago where we mentioned <laughs> The Long Shalom, um, <laughs> as, as well as write The Empire Strikes Back. So yeah. she, was, she, was not, she was not an average school child by any stretch of the imagination. I, I took a like a, a bit of a, a side detour and tried and read her original Empire Strikes Back script. And, you know, it's very, it's it's interesting because, I mean, it was, you know, the first draft, right? And of course it got changed since then, but, you know, it was very, very enlightening just in terms of like how it progressed, you know, over, you know, after she handed it off and, and what elements were core to it that she introduced. And she introduced a lot of the core elements that came in the, in the final movie. Nice, so. nice. Yeah, well, yeah. We were talking about how she clearly must have been studying um, in different fields while writing this. And I think that's also represented in the variety of cultures represented as he's as Stark is essentially doing the hex crawl <laughs> from yeah. point to point. Uh, I just I loved how instead of just the ye old medieval village that you would normally find, you had some places that had a beehive structure homes. Mm-hmm. And others had these woven upright tents, you know, like triangular tents, and then some stonework houses. And I'm I'm a sucker for for the different uh, lifestyles being represented. You know, different cultures based on on like geography yeah. and, and, and social right. stuff. Yeah, that was really neat. It made the world seem much more real and alive than exactly. everything is the same. The entire planet is 19, it's like 1905, you know, Sweden. Okay, well, that's an entire planet. Even, you know, even even uh, on Earth in 1905, the entire world wasn't Sweden. Well, and, and, and we don't really see like the, the fertile, you know, belt of the, the planet in this, in this book, at least. That was you know, like just, the equator, like, though. They had to go through the desert first, and they're still heading south to get to that area. Yeah, yeah, and I imagine that's that's probably something that the other books may explore a little bit more, since you know Skag is is kind of the main 
you know, introductory point for the Outworlders, and presumably that's also you know part of the first novel. And oh, the ship port, yeah, yeah, the ship port, you know, and that that where the where the you know the ships land, and and then they also the, the whole water region, you know, that's only hinted at in this novel, which is another one of those kind of oddities. You know, it's it's like these two characters come in, you know, you know, I, close to the end of the book, the um, Morn and uh, I can't remember the the uh, the ladies and the queen. Oh, the lady. And yeah. they're sort of like there and they provide this sort of assistance and then they're gone, you know, promised to be maybe revealed in a you know, later yeah. interlude. Um, but yeah, there's like hints of like this, you know, very different and diverse cultures, you know, throughout, you know, the, the, the world. And that's that's really neat, too. And the relationship between the two different species and the tele- uh, the telepathic trust that they've built. A lot of uh, a lot of telepathy. I, I think the, the, she used psychokinetics, you know, through this. And I, I found that really interesting because I think when we did um, Hiro's Journey, you know, this reminded me a little bit of that, which I think was published the same year you know, right right around the same time frame, you know, right before something like that. I don't know, and, Bob. Telepathic. And you have you know, telepathic moose, telepathic dog things. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was sort of like in the air, you know, of, you know, that's the seventies, <laughs> like you let's, let's explore ESP and Firestarter and all this kind of thing. You know well, yeah, it, it, it really they was. You know, seminar. Le- <laughs> you had Leonard Nimoy doing in search of. <laughs> it was, it, you know, Reader's Digest was doing mysteries of the unknown. That was, that was really a big thing coming out of the sixties into the early seventies. <laughs> So, Heck, you know, I, I think, you know, the CIA was probably just now winding down MK Ultra <laughs> while still having men stare at goats. So, I mean, there really was kind of the psychic phenomena thing in the air at the time. But what a, what a cool relationship with the North Hounds and how that all plays out in the novels and how tense it, she made her feel, especially when the battle with the Houndmaster and then at the end when he has to face off with Gerd, you know, for... After yeah. the- it's like those are moments that just had me like, what's going to happen? I don't know, you know, yeah. you know. In, in it's like never taken for granted, like yeah. like other authors would do. Okay, well he, you know, he he forced them to submit, and now he is their master forever. Like, no, that's not how animals work. And the moment there's weakness, they're going to say, "Hey, yeah, I yeah. can take you." So this and, is a uh, like grand adventure and everything. Can we talk about the horror aspect? The runners. <laughs> Yeah, very cool. Oh, yeah, (laughs) these like skin, like old leather, and and yeah, they are positively devastating and revolting. Yeah, Uh, they have stones and femurs and then teeth, but their own teeth, not their not the way they're described is just (laughs) running with like their arms out, like stiff, unflapping wings. And I wasn't sure if it was like, are they out to the side or are they doing that 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 whole like anime (laughs) run with their arms back? They they were doing it to keep balance. So yeah, but but it was they're so creepy, and the fact that the fact that there's these, these rampaging hordes of of like unthinking cannibals and so what do we, what do we do what does our hero do he weaponizes them <laughs> yeah. oh man the, the small, that was dark the small cell the the quote-unquote family including the the one that was possibly woman holding something small to her chest and it was an infant runner <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, that, that was great. It's very, and it's funny. Things that, reacting to this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it is one of the things that you don't see in other works of this type. I mean, it, it's, it, it's exploring, like you said, like the horror elements, you know, in a way that, and in, in the fact that he uses them in battle, like as a tactic, you know, or that, you know, his allies decide to do that. It's, it is very fun to see and, and, a little bit creepy, like you said. I mean, there's a there's a few moments of that creepiness. You know, there's like the year when they go and and discover, you know, like the the breeding grounds of the year. It's sort of like you know hinted oh. at in terms of like these Obscene. slug-like creatures that are giving birth to these you know they're, these sort of warriors. Slugs <clears throat> with empty eyes. Yeah, and those are yeah, those are the well created servants. Well, because the because what the what the year what the year were birthing were were you know very very humanoid and almost perfect but they all looked alike right so i mean that should have been our warning right there right that you know there's a queen just popping out drones 
<laughs> but they were talking about, well, now now that those are destroyed, there's just the males left. Okay, so it now was, that we've tackled one of the top things on my list of things to stack. Why don't we move to things to stack? Yeah. <laughs> ah. Wait, well, before we leave the book, one thing I just wanted to say, I love a book with a map, and this has a, a great map, you know, at the beginning of the book. My edition at least did. I don't oh, know if you, you guys found, have one. You but found it had a print a, it, copy. It, yeah, I got a print awesome. copy that um, has a nice, you know, uh, double folded map and you know you know i love that whenever i find that in in one of these novels so anyways yeah nice pick up no, the print no, copy just for oh, that full props for maps i'm i'm a fan <laughs> it's less that someone else has to do down the line indeed indeed bob what about you so what you want to start us off with things that's that well, well sure i mean obviously right the the north hounds the the the, the, the titular hounds of scathe right i mean they're they're Gen- telepathic things, yeah. above animal intelligence so they they could communicate but they weren't they're were incredibly verbose you know it's like you know you know kill or you know all's red 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 mines red mines kill <laughs> yeah because they were kind of you know, fixated on, on, on killing um, and and they're they're mental ability there the way they killed was normally not by fang and claw but but by literally using psychic powers to terrify things to death Mm -hmm. and as a matter of fact in that in that scene that jen mentions with the runner family we only get the confirmation that it was a runner infant after all of them including the infant have been slain by the hound's mental abilities, which is is both dark and, and terrifying. They also like they also play, play with their 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 people, right? There's oh some yeah, they do. Like, they, they, they start tossing them around food. you as they're. <laughs> oh yeah, uh, they're like, okay, things are dead now. Then chop chop toss toss. They're, they're very. That's why this felt so much like Metamorphosis Alpha? I had that character. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Mental attack as the canine. Yeah, yeah, we could do this. And and really, right after right after the North House, the next thing I would stat would be the runners. Right, they're they're so adapted to their environment; they're so terrifying. I would probably rather than doing them as a monster, though, I might do them as a meta magician entry, because at the end of the day, Madness. they're not greatly different from everyone else, other than they they've developed certain certain traits. You know, they they move with the winds, but they're cannibals. But I mean, they're they're much like the others on the world. They've just adapted to the desert, and they're cannibals. They're well, I mean, they're described as being like piranha. So really, they're like like flesh eating locusts. Yeah, I think that's when you have the maybe monster, flesh. or maybe the men and magician stat entry. That's number encountered five D one hundred or something like. That. Yeah, because <laughs> it can be anywhere from a family unit to a giant mass. Um, I really enjoyed the tarf. Uh, the four-armed bird things. In my brain, I see them as kind of pterodactylish. They don't really describe them all that much, other than the fact that they fly and they have four arms. Is um, that what uh, Clatlect was? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> no, uh, no, he was. Uh, he controlled them. They were the servants. The tarf. The tarf were the four-armed guardians. Oh, gotcha. Of- I think I think Clatlect is the one that that he encounters in. Going up the stairs, and he's right. one of the oh. tarp, and I think the king is named. As- oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah, Platlect um, was um, described as hairless, horned, four arms. Each of those arms ending in three tentacular fingers. Yeah, yeah they're just they're they're and- really creepy. They are immune. Hard. Yeah, they're immune to the mind bolts mm-hmm. of the hounds. So you know, is it because they're immune to fear? Is it because their minds are so different? And and they were they're a, a created race, right? I mean, they're um, what do they call them? A controlled mutation. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just like their masters are also a controlled mutation, but not as as successful. And oh, the, bird, the bird people. Yep. And honestly, come on, they 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 don't wield. You know, they got four arms, but they're not wielding four swords. No, no, they're wielding four handed swords. <laughs> I want to stab a four-handed sword. Is that like a single blade? Or is it four? Yeah, it's a four-handed sword. A two-handed sword is two hands. A four-handed sword is a four-handed sword. Which would probably be a two-handed sword for a giant, but still. So it just it gives you this this absolute menacing 
you know, feel for these things that are they're certainly far more intelligent than the hounds, right? I mean, they they go into battle with these things, and they're like, okay, well, we'll stay a little bit longer, but if you're not coming with us, we're leaving. They those those were the things that I was like, yeah, I gotta I gotta stab those. Yeah. I gotta stab those. What about you, Mark? Yeah, so I I think that the the controlled mutations, you know, the the other ones that were kind of glimpsed out in the book where we got a lot, a lot more details on were the, the Falarin, which are the the bird creatures that become Stark's allies. And I love that they have this kind of ability to control the wind, right? And they even like, you know, they have, they call it the term is the where winds, right? You know, where, yeah, um, which I love that phrase and just like, you know, how they end up using it to like, you know, like you said, you know, they weaponize the runners by creating these sandstorms that, you know, envelop and then push them forward and sort of enclose them. And they use the winds to demoralize a siege as a siege attack, right? So they spend like three days pounding the city with winds without even, you know, you know, sending their troops in. And then once everything is devastated and every and the exhaustion is set in, that's when they send in, you know, the the ground troops. And and so the Farallon are like this really kind of cool thing that I think you could you could you know, whether it's a player character species or just like a monster, they have a lot of fun abilities. The other ones, like they, you know, the, the children of the sea are mother, which is like these aquatic creatures, the children of scathe, which are the, the under the mountain ones, you know, that never come out or, you know, have this kind of religious practice. The susming, which are, which is the mourn race, you know, the ones that have the telepathic ability, you know, uh, that, you know, right. they, so this kind of symbiotic relationship, it seems with, um, with them. Um, and then the Ur, you know, the, the, you know, just this, you know, how they are, you know, these kind of genetic clones, you know, whether they're kind of like bad things or maybe they're yeah. this kind of like warrior, warrior creation. So all of those, I think, are kind of rich for, for some sort of statting up. I gotta say the Falarin are such a unique idea. It's not yeah. something I've read of before, that kind of hybrid mutation and that power that. Well, and, and they're sort of like really impressive. Hampered, you know, they're, they're, they're presented as imperfect right because they they you know they their species was designed or hopefully created to fly but they only can fly imperfectly and they sort of have this you know they've developed this alternative way of powering themselves you know with you know the supremacy over the wind or which is kind of the remoteness and their you know the they kind of the like a group the, power yeah the, and oh yeah that we'll get yeah. to my word of the day but well, and, um, and that <laughs> the, the, like one of the things in there is that whole scene where they're like sort of rustling their wings and you know it's you know kind of creating this like you know, noise, you know, of, of, of communication mm-hmm. amongst themselves, which was really cool. And they weren't just a controlled you know, mutation. They were, they were a mutation by request. They wanted um, to be yeah. given the gift of flight. Yeah. And that's why, you know, when the, the first time Stark sees their wings, he's like, those wings will right. never carry them right. to, to high loft. <laughs> and he says, you know, we, 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 our, our wings are imperfect. Yeah. They can, they can glide, they can fly mm-hmm. you know, at low heights, but the, the rest of the time they're riding like everybody else. <clears throat> yeah. The other thing I was thinking would be kind of cool because this is one thing we even really talked about is that when you read your, the intro description, Jen, is that there's a galactic empire it hovers over the, the whole, you know, narrative because, you know, it's always referred it's, that's the objective, right? You know, they want to get off planet. They want to take Ash. He has to rescue Ashton. He has to get Ashton back. They have to get off planet. They have to find the transceiver, you know, or to communicate. They have to, and, and, and that's whole aspect is like very interesting from a storytelling element. But I thought the really cool thing that from a campaign or, or like gaming element is the planet hoppers, because they are sort of this, um, you know, very mutant crawl classics or like ancient technology that comes to oh, life, yeah. and it, the, and they I use it in the battle. You know, yeah. And I just love that idea of you know, you know, statting up a planet hopper that's part of you know whether it's like a purple planet setting or like a mutant crawl classic setting. It's this this kind of like cool technology that you know that discoverable, maybe usable, maybe it has some you know you know things that go wrong with it, you know, type thing. Um, but yeah, that planet hopper is the other thing I kind of really liked. Um, that's right. <laughs> I'm stumbling. Uh, you got it. You still got it. <laughs> yep. yep. Uh, what about you, Jen? Um, I really dug the idea of the ritual of hearthright, where a, a specific herb was essentially smudged across Stark's forehead, and the resident, the leader of these people says, I. I wish no harm to be done to you. If harm is done to you, may the same be done to me. Oh, yeah. You are welcome in my home and in my place. Um, so I I kind of like the idea of uh, 
just maybe a, a small effect on that, like maybe um, uh, can't the canticles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe pairing that with uh, one of our deities that hasn't been fully fleshed out yet. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't uh, touch on statting out the game of marbles, essentially. <laughs> Varicolored coals tossed onto a space marked out with intricate patterns drawn on the ground or in the dust, as it were. Uh, And just because I have to hearken back to the adder corn, there was a compressed lichen cake that was given to the livestock. And it just seemed to be a a nectar, an ambrosia to them. Mm hmm. Was it as addictive as Adderkorn? Because Adderkorn was creepy. Uh, we don't <laughs> know because the livestock weren't telepathic with Stark like Fair. the dogs were. <laughs> but boy, Adderkorn is a is a is a big long callback to uh, the Sanctus episode number one. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, happy birthday, Mister Beatty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm good. But yeah, that that ritualized hospitality. Yeah. Um, yeah that that could just be like a minor, um, like the reverse of one of our curses, maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, then continue on, Jen. Let's let's move on to audio. Did you have any thoughts on audio? Um, insert blank look here. Actually, what I typed out was ellipses. So <laughs> <watch> next. <laughs> My, my, mine is just one line above that. I, I only have one <laughs> entry. And when I was reading the story, because there's so many kind of like, you know, parallels to, you know, Frank Herbert and, you know, some of the, you know, the Bedouin stuff, the the soundtrack to Lawrence of Arabia, the, you know, the movie came into my mind a lot, just because I think that would be kind of like a, a cool sort of like, you know, you know, resonating theme, you know, to accompany, you know, a gaming session. It's, it's not my favorite soundtrack, but it's also one of the things that's very iconic, you know, and it's, it certainly evokes, you know, the same sort of like uprising and leading the, the, you know, the, the tribesmen, you know, against the, uh, you know, the, the, the empire type thing that, uh, that's, uh, that's going on in the, in the John Stark novel or the Eric Stark novel. So. Well, I, I will certainly agree with you on a soundtracks being a really good choice. Uh, my, I, now I will admit, you know, one of my first thoughts is kind of a cheat, which was the, the soundtrack to John Carter, right, by, uh, <laughs> by Michael uh, Giacchino, but it it has that sort of sweeping epic feel, which which you also find in the Lawrence of Arabia soundtrack, right? It's got the, the huge swelling instrumentals. It conveys you know the the flowing dunes and and the, and the strange places. And then I started looking at some of other some others by Michael Giacchino, like. Jupiter Rising or Worf the Planet of the Apes are also really great. I mean, this, the guy's done soundtracks for everything. He's done, I mean, he did he did Werewolf by Night. I mean, he's done, you know, Star Trek Beyond. He's done everything. <laughs> but but those three soundtracks specifically I thought were a really good choice. But in trying to find something more specific, it was really difficult because unlike because Lee Brackett, while an important author and very influential doesn't really get, doesn't really have the same name recognition. It's like Robert E. Howard or Lovecraft. There there's not, there's not bands out there dedicated to, to churning out music based on the works of Lee Brackett. But I did find a, uh, a group called electric wizard. They're a, uh, of a, they're a death metal band out of the UK. And their first three albums are all considered like genre defining albums in death metal. And their third album was called Let Us Pray. And in that they cite, they, they have a in the in the liner notes, there's lyrical inspirations, and it's Robert E. Howard, HP Lovecraft, Lee Brackett, Edgar cool. Rice Burroughs, and, and the, the, there's a few others on the list, but they specifically cite her as an inspiration to the lyrics for the album. Okay. So, so between between Lawrence of Arabia and, and what I put together, we have uh, 
Spotify list that's about five and a half hours <laughs> of, uh, of music. Now, granted, uh, it starts it starts with Electric Wizard, which is is very very different from everything else on the on the list. Mm, so uh, so you don't want. I wouldn't put this list on shuffle if I were you. Um, Are you just, kidding? It's the best kind. It I mean, might be I'll add a few more uh, desert-themed ones that I just thought of. Like Carl Sanders has a, a pretty good, like you know, sort of pyro. I think is maybe the album, um, which is really good. Um, and the Hans Zimmer New Dune uh, soundtrack is is very, uh, yeah, you know, very kind of in that element too. Um, but again, you know, very focused on the desert. We there's much more to this planet, you know, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, most certainly. It's just there, there's there's a lot of music that that kind of that can easily accompany this there's not there's just not as much music with a direct link right uh, as opposed to like you know conan or, or some of the other things so okay well if if you could only come up with with one soundtrack to time mark say redeem yourself with your with your word which which oddly <laughs> enough is singular with your word of the day which i'm betting is going to be plural well i i always try to like you know go through and find a few words and then I get my top choice. Um, And it goes back to what we were talking about with that scene where they're, where he's encountering the Falarin and there's this rustling that he hears. And the, you know, the way that Lee Brackett describes it is use the word susurration, which is a lovely word. And just one of those things that you, you read and it's like, Oh, I I can understand what that means. It's that kind of whispering, you know, sort of like raspy, you know, sound. It's an onomatopoeia. Yeah, and and it's yeah. and, and and just seeing that in print, I was like, oh, that's that's my. I instantly knew that was the word I wanted to, to bring up. But there's a, you know, the werewinds was another one that I just like love seeing in print and love seeing that that sort of combination of you know like new terminology that's when you join words like that, and it's so so evocative when they use it for you know the the runners and you know use it in 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 description of the the battle of the city. Um, so that's another one I would just say that you know she created obviously or maybe had you know, maybe some association with, but, you know, it's a created word that I really like. I also was interested, like, scathe, you know, itself is, is you know, means to harm or, you know, to injure. And I think that's just kind of interesting, you know, sort of etymology, just going back whether she intentionally used that or not, it's kind of a, an alternate spelling of it, you know, scathe, you know, C-H or C-A-T-H-E. That's kind of a more, more common one. Considering one but, of the lesser tribes was known as harm, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but she, but Lee Brackett really had some uh, some beautiful turns of phrases. You know, even if she her vocabulary was not like as dense as mm-hmm. you know, like Jack Vance or things like that. But like one of the phrases that you know came out to me was like when she's describing. I think it was maybe it was one of the I can't remember. If it wasn't Eric Stark that you know um, she was describing, but it, but it was like when he smiled, he was ham- handsome as a sword is handsome. You know, which is like this kind of like you know it's a very sort of like, for me, evocative way of phrasing that, you know, very it's, it's stern not almost. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just love that, that kind of like, she had multiple of those kind of comparisons. So, yeah, but I, I think the lovely sort of like use of, you know, these kind of like, um, you know, diamonds of words, like, you know, the sorceration was just one of those that lived out to me. And I thought, you know, was, was one, one I wanted I to actually had to look up, um, <laughs> I flagged just in case you hadn't. And that was Dite. Yeah. <laughs> Dite was another one I listed and it was kind of like, what is she meaning here? Because it was like they did not dite to prepare for for the for the war, coming war or something like that, right? And, um, and they hadn't equipped. Oh right, yeah. So they hadn't it's gotten ready because they were like reveling, right? Or equipped. Yeah, yeah. So so they were basically like trying to you know they were, they weren't taking it seriously because mm-hmm. they were in a party mood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, her her use of language is wonderful. Yeah. Well, that takes us, I think, to... It was to, a breezier read, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very, yeah, very easy to read, so. Um, I guess our next segment, in, Existing Inspirations and Reskins. Um, I think that, Jen, you wanted to, to highlight a couple here that we that I don't think uh, Bob or I had thought of. There, there's a couple that kind of tie in uh, both on the same note. Um, the first two are from our newest setting, The Dying Earth, of course, Uh Penumbra of the Polar Ape by Harley Stroh and Pilgrims of the Black Obelisk by some guy named Mark, you know, uh, by Mark and Julian. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both very heavily based on the pilgrimage. Uh, there's some really great tones in there that could 
tie in perfectly with this book. Um, the other side of Penumbra is that you're you're essentially stark. You're you're on this mm. rock that you're not familiar with, and you're just trying to get back home. But you also encounter the situations with the pilgrims, and it's the total hex crawl, <laughs> uh, really, for uh, literal purposes. Once you get through that, you'll understand. Uh, the other two that I tagged were uh, Beyond the Black Gate and The One Who Watches From Below, because those are the two that I can find off the top of my head that have hounds that have anything remotely similar to these capabilities as the North Hounds. And I believe Beyond the Black Gate even ties them into uh, the Invoke Patron spell that you get with, um, shoot, Bob, help, uh, Beyond the Black Gate, your new NPC. Oh, uh, the Master of the Wild Hunt. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the hounds are actually tied in with the Invoke Patron spell for that. Which kind of, uh, yeah, helps. <laughs> but the one who watches <laughs> from below contains some hounds that uh, also have a couple of special abilities that you could very easily tweak if you're looking for a uh, something you don't have to do yourself mm-hmm. for those stats. And I know you guys have some really interesting ones. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that we've alluded to, you know, that there's a lot of Purple Planet, you know, just in the setting, you know, that you could easily reskin the Purple Planet to be Scathe. You know, I think that's, that's, there's very much like you could take many of the adventures that are located there. You know, the Kith are sort of like a race that, you know, you could, you know, transport to some of the tribes that are there or some of the, you know, more like warlike creatures that are sort of, you know, part of that, part of Scathe. There's also like three mini, you know, smaller adventures that are part of Purple Planet that people may not be as familiar with. The Rock Awakens, the um, the Synthetic Swordsmen of the Purple Planet, and the Sky Masters of the Purple Planet. The Synthetic Swordsman, I think, actually has like a sort of a climate theme to it, right? You know, which has this, you know, idea oh. that there's like some sort of climate generating device at the north, you know, uh, hot, far north of the, the, the world. And it's gone, you know, dormant and you have to kind of like, you know, react to that. And so that's a that's kind of a cool tie into to the climate themes of this neon nights, you know, which is kind of a purple planet in disguise, right? You know, that's that's yeah. one of these things that it it's very much a you know doesn't yeah. start you there, but it gets you there. You know, it's an adventure. Um, so I think that's another one that that's oh, especially that the way it starts. You're yeah. you're essentially fighting these identical year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I think there's like a lot wow. of that you could just like you know take and just pluck and put right in the setting. Um, we talked about dying earth. I think there's a lot of, you know, just, just, ba- you know, basic you could do there. The two I thought that were, that came to mind because they're just more adjacent. The, um, the, the crawl jammer zine that was published by Tim Callahan for a few issues. There's a psionic night class that uses, uh, has like a psionic table, you know, that's really kind of cool. And it's a way of introducing psionics into DCC. You know, one of the first, you know, attempts to do that. I think there's been subsequent ones. But, you know, that Psionic Knight class is kind of like a Hyro, you know, type character, but you could easily make it, you know, something that's part of like, um, you know, Eric Stark's, you know, capability, especially with his, um, you know, uh, abilities to communicate and, and work with the hounds. The other one that really came to mind was uh, James McGeorge's Black Sun Death Crawl, which um, is, is so it because much. because of the dead baby? You know, <laughs> it's so much like that horror theme, you know, and like, crawling underground the dying planet you know this sort of like timetable um if if any of our viewers have not you know picked up that it's a it, it was it was a, a beautiful you know short zine or short you know product that um really got a lot of deserved attention you know several years back um but it's it's just really great um as a, an evocative setting and it fits into that horror themes you're talking about jen black sun death crawl black sun death crawl <laughs> black sun death crawl Dead babies do a D3 damage. It is, it is, it is the darkest adventure ever written, I think, for quite possibly any game system. But it is, it is so often imitated, never duplicated. It is a phenomenal. Here you go. Yeah. You really want to get your hands up. All right. Um, I don't know. We gave Bob too much time to think about it. He started writing this list. This ain't fair. So, so first of all, I think, um, 
you could take Doom of the Savage Kings mm-hmm. and you could you could replace the beast with a North Hound. Oh yeah. And yeah. and that that adds another as another level of, of, of <laughs> danger because now it's a little bit more intelligent and you know, it has that ability to you know, kind of kind of wipe out the zeros that get in its way. Exactly. Um, well, you know, for psionics, of course, um, Reed San Filippo and Shield of Faith Studios released Mind Games, their version of psionics, certainly worth looking at. Oh, that's what that is. Okay. But I think that it would be very easy to tie this into Mutant Call Classics, right? Yeah. Dealing with uh, mutations, both controlled and otherwise, in kind of a broad sense. And as as you mentioned, you know, there's so so much of the of the technology from from the outer worlds could certainly be you know, artifacts of the ancients if you were running it that way. But I really like the idea of tying this in and using Starcrawl mm. because I mean the the whole point is there's this massive galactic empire. They've got all this technology. We're not seeing it here, and it's just because they're not bringing it planet side. Mm-hmm. Right. This, the, this is a planet that never achieved space flight. They're dwindling down and they're certainly willing to trade for me- just metal. Right. So, of course, you're not going to arm the local populace. So that gives you an opportunity to to take a kind of high tech group of characters and drop them into a very low tech setting and make the players get by more on their wits than uh, than. Uh, powerful, uh, you know, items and, and lasers and things of that nature. Yeah. And it, it really ties into a lot of storytelling elements that are part of the book where people are, don't believe that anybody comes from the off world, that their the escape is the, the only place in the universe that is inhabited or their concept of the universe. And so a lot of that kind of like, you know, role playing of what do the NPCs even think of, you know, people who, who come and tell them they come from beyond the stars, they, they must be mad, you know? And and actually, we're reminded in the in the shout box that uh, that mind games wasn't even really so much redone as just like reimagined and expanded on for the book <laughs> Umerica Unnatural, hmm. which is which is an, an entire source book for Umerica as opposed to the smaller zine. It's a, a really good call there. A fantastic book. And then finally. <laughs> There's an adventure, and, and it kills me because it, it's it's unpublished, but it's so, 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 so deserving of the praise, is Photogon on the Purple Planet by Scott McKinley. Uh, Scott ran it at GaryCon 2022, and it was by far and away my favorite adventure of the con, and quite possibly the year. And, you know, I ran stuff that I wrote. So I'm just saying, um, because it is, it's this broad sweeping epic set on the purple planet where you're the outsider. So you're from the standard DCC world. You're, so you're taken to the purple planet and now it is raising the forces, stopping, you know, stopping this, this unstoppable foe and this grand sweeping military epic that you can play in a four hour session if you're lucky at, Hunt Scott McKinley down and make him run it for you. That is hard <laughs> to say. Um, you That's will not regret it. a toggin on the purple planet. Very cool. Yeah. I'm going to copy and paste that for everybody. Um, that way they know who exactly who to hunt down. Yeah, he's just lucky I'm not posting his Facebook account into, into, the, uh, into the chat stream right now. <laughs> Now, now. <laughs> I'll do what it takes. I want to buy a copy of that adventure. <laughs> well, I think that brings us to our DCC feature for the show. The other thing that we wanted to highlight, MCC number five, Blessings of the Vile Brotherhood by uh, Harley Stroh. Bob, do you want to give us a little bit of a uh, synopsis sure. here? When your tribe's prize possession, a functioning metabot, finally breaks down, your secret team is given a holy quest. Take the dead bot on a long and perilous journey to the monks of the holy medicinal order in hopes that their shamans can repair it. But the monks are not as the legends portray. There is definitely something dark and dangerous going on in the holy monastery. 
Blessing of the Vile Brotherhood takes PCs into the foreboding mountains that ring the hothouse jungles of the post-apocalypse. The PCs' quest leads them along the Pilgrim's Way, an ancient sacred path in search of the Holy Medicinal Brotherhood. There, amidst the high peak shrouded in gray rad snow, dread bots fighting a long-forgotten war, and the perverted beasts that have sought shelter in the wilderness, the PCs discover the truth of the Holy Order and its bloody fate. Yeah. I'll admit this, one... this was a toss-up. This was a toss-up between Dying Earth and MCC. I I leaned on MCC because we've we've pretty much uh trod Dying Earth a lot lately. <laughs> yeah. But this is great because this is the first time I actually read this adventure. I hadn't, you know, I have the MCC you know, books and all that things, but I never dived into this one. It's a great adventure. I mean, I, I, you know, it's, of course it's Harley Stroh. It's going to be, you know, very solid, but he has some really interesting mechanics for the, uh, the, you know, kind of the hex crawl side of things, right. Mm-hmm. Where you have kind of free reign to go different directions. So he gives the judges guidance on, okay, if you, if they do this, then, you know, here's kind of the consequences. And the fun thing is the mechanic really builds off of the PC's choices, you know, in a way that, they are being hunted by this, you know, ancient artifact. It's blind. It has this sort of like limitations that are, you know, very fun to to you know you use as a as a device. But it has this kind of really interesting sort of search mechanic and like hunting and seeking and sending out its drones. And it's all. It's just. It's. I thought that part was just great. You know, just that. You know, how he came up with that. Um, certainly, those that runners. <laughs> Yeah, but certainly, like, it, it does tie in thematically with, like, this, you know, theocracy, you know, that has been built up and been kind of similar to Scathe, where, you know, this order of monks is, you know, somewhat revered and by, you know, by people as far as, like, providing succor and, and sustenance, but it's it's got this dark side, too, right, you know, in terms of, like, that's, you know, something pieces can discover. And, and I, I, so I think it's a, it's a great sort of tie in for the themes. Um, and just the fact that it has like mutant crawl classics all over it, you know, which is, which is really cool. And, you know, especially Pilgrim's Way, that, that was kind of the, the deciding factor on that one, at least in my mind. Um, honestly, I hadn't read this one for probably six years. I remember play testing it right before it went out for publication, like 2017 or something. Does that sound right? Yeah, Somewhere I think so. Somewhere in there. Um, yeah, and I mean, one of one of the NPCs could easily be uh, the guy that Stark is looking for at the very end and finally finds. Pedoralon or something like that? Pelaridon, yeah. Pelaridon, yeah, I can't remember. Pelaridon, what? Yeah. I'm not going to open the book now. But it takes the entirety of the story to find him and find the transceiver and and get all of that uh peladron's uh i know i'm getting the name wrong but his demeanor could so easily be that of uh brother lecho one of the mm-hmm. primary npcs in there although yeah he he had it, it like depends. Because there's actually, it depends on where you encounter him and what kind of mood he's in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think he's the mad brother, Lecho. Is, is, maybe oh, I was referring to Maybe. Bob, what were your thoughts? Well, my, my biggest thing is this adventure right off the bat begins with um, the PCs having nightmares, right? Which are are. are Kind of, kind of foreshadowing things to come. So it struck me as very akin to uh, Gareth's visions. And so you could easily, rather than nightmares, which you know, I, anyone who's played in any of my like Mount Monsters games will tell you, I'm a huge fan <laughs> of, of giving uh, PCs nightmares. But you could instead use a, a seer to to give them those visions and maybe not all at once maybe there's a seer traveling with them and giving them these these little bits much like was happening with eric stark well you know i see something you know something accepting you i see a dagger but it's it's not it's not a good thing giving giving them those little bits of, of feel really i think would would 
tie into this nicely. The adventure itself is is really good. The, the, the whole Canticle for Leibowitz feel to it is, I mean, it's a great book. It's, it's definitely more Canticle for Leibowitz than St. Leibowitz and the Wild Horsewoman, right? I think Mark, <laughs> you'll agree with me on that, right? It is yeah. More than the former rather than the latter. Um, but overall, it has sort of that that same... It has a same, a very similar feel, but almost like you're following in the wake of Eric Stark, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you when you get to the monastery, it's like you're arriving at the city that was laid siege to after Stark has left. You're you're just a tick behind, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so you're dealing you're dealing with the aftermath. But unlike unlike Stark, uh, you liked the people that were in there, and uh, and maybe don't yeah. like the people that uh, that were going in against them. But overall, it's a it's a tight little adventure mm-hmm. with some great little twists and turns. And depending, you know, like you said, de- depending on where you encounter an NPC, depending on on how you handle certain things, your experience can be very different with it. And that's something that, that as a judge, I always appreciate. I like being able to run an adventure, you know, multiple times for multiple groups. Mm-hmm. You know, there it's it's their first experience, no matter what, right? But it's my second or third or fourth. And so when I'm playing something that can turn out very differently based on what exactly. you do, I greatly appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I will say it's a level four m- module for MCC. So it is definitely higher level than most of the things you will come across for MCC. And I kind of feel like it's not gotten a whole lot of uh, oomph since that initial MCC Kickstarter. It's not yeah. one of the ones that people always talk about. Um, I don't know why it's got yeah. such a, a Just the cover alone. bizarre driven cover, right? Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it does suffer from that sort of like inattention because of high levels, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. just not as many people experience with that, but it's one definitely one of those that you could even, you know, just take it and make it into a straight like first or second level adventure with some minor modifications as well. You know, yeah. and I think that yeah. if you wanted to like take your your group that may be a little lower level and just you know tweak it because it's well worth it. That's it. I'm gonna start stocking things at conventions alphabetically by author. <laughs> hey Mark, hey, hey we're in the bees. <laughs> Which means you're behind everyone at the top. <laughs> <laughs> at least the first day you know the second day we gotta yeah, but julian's a be so he'll be all the way in the back. oh yeah so we'll at least be in front of julian <laughs> oh brother okay well i think that takes it uh takes it for our show yeah tonight um you know we and i'll just take us out you know with some uh parting words that is a reminder we've relaunched the sanctum Socorum companion as a sanctum Socorum quarterly our first issue is massive and includes new monsters and magic reviews, rules, discussion, comics, and even an adventure. And as always, it's available for free on DriveThruRPG. Plus, we are always looking for more content and contributors. The next quarterly is uh, coming up. And if you are interested, please reach out. We would love to have your um, your vision in that uh, in that uh, that publication. Um, if you're in- interested in joining the team for the long haul or simply have something to contribute for a single issue, drop us a line at the hub at sanctum media, sanctum.media. We'd love to see what sort of things you have been creating. Um, in the meantime, be sure to check out our new releases from Ugandan author Ashraf Brandon, uh, the Kakwando, the Luquata, and the Bashwazi. Um, all of them are available on drivethroughrpg.com and are only $1 each. And we'll put links to those in our show notes and on the website. Um, and watch for the next release coming very soon. Um, Bob, do you have any knowledge of what that is coming up? Oh, yeah. So how about a cult of cannibalistic witches who are, also, who are among other things, known as the Night Dancers? Oh, awesome. Yeah. Pronunciation guides again, right? Yes, yes, it is. We just just got the the cover art for it uh, yesterday, so it'll be coming out in a few days. It is it is another just delightfully creepy piece of uh, Ugandan folklore. Yeah, I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to proceeds that. from that. Go to Ashley. all the proceeds go. Yeah, all of Sanctum's proceeds because Drive Through still gets their cut. 
but all Sanctum <laughs> proceeds, including uh, the affiliate proceeds, go directly to Ashraf. Yeah, that's great. And, and they're also just dollars, so you know they're very low cost for some really quality material. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please comment on the podcast or help us by posting a review on iTunes um, or whatever podcatcher of choice you may have. Um, and now we are on YouTube or Drive Through RPG for you, Zine fans. <laughs> um, those ratings and reviews help new listeners find the podcast and the community. And next month, join us when we discuss uh, a return to Dying Earth um, for Kugel the Clever. So it's good that we save the Dying Earth until, uh, <laughs> until next month. There is a reason go. that Dying Earth wasn't a feature. Yeah, we Here just we can't do Dying Earth, Dying Earth, Dying Earth all the time. Yeah. Well, we yeah. could. I mean, that's what we did for several years, but uh, <laughs> of, of our actual lives. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> and definitely take a look at our, uh, if you don't have it, um, you know, I think, can they get a bookmark off the website as well in terms of our season? Um, coming right now, they need to find us for bookmarks, but I will, uh, I think the, the list has been posted and we'll get it reposted. And uh, you know where to find somebody at UK Games Expo. Next nice. Week. Yes, Sanctum will have swag at UK Game Expo. <laughs> how cool is that? That's Seriously, awesome. how cool is that? Um, um, we're really covering some some really interesting works and authors that are you know part of the celebration of the third season, and so some really exciting upcoming uh, topics that we'll be discussing. Well, any last thoughts, Barbara? Uh, thanks for your patience at the beginning. Sorry for the rough start. And I have to apologize ahead of time. Uh, Spellburn was scheduled for tomorrow night, but the Dark Master is preempted. So uh, we'll catch you next month. Yeah, I, I, I will. Uh, I will also thank everyone for their patience. It's never good when your power company comes out and when when everything when the lights come back on. They're like, yeah, we don't know how you had power to begin with. And, your ground wire was fried all the way through. Everything else is charred. Uh, we got it fixed, though. <laughs> so so we shouldn't have had power. Or, or you could have been on fire. <laughs> it's fixed now, right? It's fixed now. You're all good. So, uh, so yeah. So, thank you for your patience on that. But also, I'm I'm a massive fan of, of Lee Brackett. And I encourage anyone that hasn't read her stuff or hasn't read it in a while, there's a number of omnibus collections out there. Pick it up and start reading it. Uh, she was a phenomenal author for her time. She's a phenomenal author today. Uh, so, so definitely, definitely pick up her stuff. And other than that, be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media.